Matthew chapter 5. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 1473. Chapter 5 begins what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It is without a doubt the single longest, longest and inspirational and touching message that Jesus taught. It is powerful. Uh, it's amazing. If you haven't had the chance to read through it, I would suggest you do, but we're not going to go all the way through it today. We're going to look at uh, most of the first part that is commonly called the Beatitudes. Now, it's called the Beatitudes because in Latin, it's Beatitudo, and we've kind of made it English in saying the B-attitudes because those are the things we are to be kind of taken from Hamlet where he says to be or not to be, to exist or not to exist, so to speak. And it's the idea of these are the things we are to be. Now, Compared to the world around us, it's full of contradictions. It contradicts almost every basic thing that the world around us believes. Um, it's important for us to understand that all of these are going to apply to our lives. They promise something for what they demand, and it seems upside down. It's, it, it just doesn't seem right in our, wor in our world's way of thinking. Um, who is the greatest person ever born of women or of men, as the Bible puts it? Anybody know? Well, check this out. It's in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus is speaking and he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what was upside down about John the Baptist? Well, he had no home, no possessions, he dressed in a camel hair garment. And if you've, anybody's ever ridden a camel? Anybody ever ridden a camel? That hair is not pleasant, especially when it touches your skin. It's not soft and smooth. John the Baptist wore that. He ate bugs, locusts, and honey. He had no financial, military, or political power. Even by the standards of that day, he was a complete failure. Yet, Jesus said there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? 
what we look at today is not that we should live a life of camel hair clothes and eat bugs, but the message in these passages about, is about the internal part of each of us, not the external. It's about the spiritual and moral, uh, not the physical. There's nothing in here about political or social reform. They are about you and me and our relationship to Christ and our attitudes towards the world around us. You see, Jesus' greatest concern was for us spiritually. Because what we believe determines what we do. I mean, the Jews were pretty messed up. They had uh, four different factions that were fighting for their, their attention. The Pharisees believed that right religion consisted in divine laws and religious tradition, and don't you dare break it. They wanted absolute observance of the, of the Mosaic law and the details of the traditions. Now, we all know about the 613 laws required in Exodus, don't we? They had probably another 13,000 traditions that they added on to that that you couldn't be right with God unless you followed all of those. Different interpretations. The Sadducees were focused on the present, not the past. They were the religious liberals of the day who discounted most things supernatural and who modified both scripture and tradition to fit what they believed. Well, we can't do that either, and the Jews... Yeah, it wasn't appropriate for them. This, uh, I can't even say that word this morning. The Essenes were aesthetics who believed that right religion meant separation from the rest of the society. They lived off in the boonies by themselves, but would come into town once in a while teaching what they believed. And the zealots were the political activists. They, they thought right religion centered in radical political activism. All those were wrong. Jesus was about none of those things. And if we look at verse 1, we see the situation. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountains. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, sitting down, and I'm going to stand up because I don't want you to take me wrong. Sitting down, the posture of a rabbi was absolute. He's saying, now, listen to me. This is important. But if he was standing up, it was much more informal. But because of my leg, I got to sit down. I'm sorry. And you can laugh if you want. It's, it's just me. His disciples came to him. Yet there was a huge audience. It wasn't just the 12 disciples. It could have been hundreds or thousands of his disciples, 
of his followers. And if you think that's an outrageous number, remember in just a few chapters in Matthew 14, he fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus the women and the kids and whatever that were there. So he had huge crowds. Verse 2 says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Happy are the humble, for blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I said, happy are the humble, because blessed means basically, oh, how happy. So, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And the word poor here is not just poor, not like, you know, we really can't afford to go to the movies this week. It's poor as in, we don't have any money for food today. That kind of poor. Destitute. This idea of being poor in spirit is the opposite of self-sufficiency. Through our spirit alone, through our attitudes, through our actions, we got nothing compared to what Christ wants us to have. And what Jesus is saying here is apart from the relationship with him, every person is spiritually broke. And it doesn't matter whether they're, they're, they have great education, great wealth, social status, status, great accomplishments, or awesome religious knowledge. If you're broken in your spirit, if you're poor in your spirit, Yours will be the kingdom of God. Now, we've all heard phrases like, I've got the spirit. People say, well, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good preacher. Oh, I'm a good person. I'm spiritual, but I don't have any religious contact. I remember my kids, I would discipline them and I have people say, well, you don't want to break their spirit. Well, actually, a spirit of rebellion is what you want to break in people, especially in little kids. We also see professional sports players brag about their abilities, focusing on themselves. I'm so often, this team couldn't make it without me. Which brings to thought, I finally figured out why Pastor Ian chose this Sunday to be in South Korea. It's because the Seahawks have a bye week and he wouldn't miss a thing. But see, self-pride in who we are or what we are is the opposite of having a poor spirit. And it's the contradiction because the world around us doesn't want to see us with a poor spirit. We all have a come to Jesus moment in our lives, so to speak. 
a moment when, wow, God, you're real. God, you've done this. And you came to that point of confirmation that Jesus was your Lord and Savior. How many of you felt that you did that on your own power? You see, we're broken. And we're broken before him. It's the idea of knowing you're a sinner, not taking it lightly, but it's a burden to carry, not your sin, but the fact that you think you're so awesome. It's laying aside self, understanding it's God's great, great grace and mercy that brought you to him. This next one's a great contradiction too. Happy are the sad. Does that make a lot of sense to us in this world? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy are those who mourn. What could be more self-contradictory than that? When my mom passed away, I mourned. When my dad passed away, I was too little to understand what was going on with him. But I mourned the fact that I never had a relationship with him. And we all mourn for various things. The death of a loved one, a failed relationship, family members who've taken the wrong path, and I'm sure we all have some of those. Sometimes mourning is taken to great extremes beyond what is normal, so to speak. Second Samuel uh, 18 and 19, King David is just inconsolable over the death of his son Absalom. And until Joab kind of kicked him in the rear end and said, you know, get over this. Move on with life. But that's not godly mourning, is it? You see, I mourn over my shortcomings, over what I see of myself and in myself. But without the grace of God, I'll never be good enough, so to speak. Not that I think I can. But the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We're so stuck in our hearts in grief. Where does it get us? It's been said we learn more in the valleys than on the hilltops. You know, then the difficult times of life, when we realize the depth of our sin, we gain more, don't we? And so blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'm comforted every day that I can't make it on my own, but I have Jesus Christ who took the burden of my sin 
and carries it. Happy are the meek. That's our next verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the same word translated gentle in Galatians 5.23, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the same word there. Blessed are the gentle. This idea is is one of self-control. But self-control was strength, if you can believe that. In classic Greek, it's used as a picture of a stallion under control. Lots of strength, but gentle. Lots of strength, but under control. And we've all been around weak people who fly off the handle at the smallest little thing and go a little crazy, right? There's no self-control. But being meek is that self-control. The strength of meekness is not like the MMA fighter beating its opponent to the canvas. I don't know if, how many of you are into that, but uh, I'm not. I'm just told how it is, you know. But it's not the fighter beating his opponent. It's the medic attending to the losing fighter. That's meekness. Meekness isn't grasping at every little thing. It's not concerned with self. It is totally dependent upon God. It's not fearful. Meekness walks in obedience, as Christ did. Meekness submits our self-will to the Father's perfect one. How many of us want to really go out there and do something awesome and just be famous? Be the Taylor Swift or the I don't know, she's involved with some football player, uh, Kelly or Kyle or I'm waiting for someone to come up with Kelsey. Kelsey, thank you, football fan. And the end result, they'll inherit the earth. Think about that. They will get everything at the end. Total contradiction to what the world tells us. Remember as a carpenter working my way up in the uh, construction industry, this one superintendent came along and said, you know, you got to toot yourself. You got to let people know how great you are. You got to let people know all that you do. It's not weakness, meekness. Happy are the hungry. How many of you are happy when you're hungry? My daughter has a sign in her house that says, hangry. It's a combination between hungry and angry. And that's usually how a lot of us get when we're hungry, right? 
We want something to eat. We get a little cranky. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This beatitude speaks of a strong desire, a driving pursuit, or a passionate force inside the soul. It is ambitious, but not the type of ambition that brings glory to oneself. It's ambition of the right type. Its object is to honor, obey, and give God the glory by being a part of his righteousness. Oh, there are lots of, lots of problems in the world. We would all, you know, we would all believe that. But who causes most of the problems? We have an enemy who is out there. He is the father of lies. He manipulates the world toward evil. People go from thou shalt not kill to killing little babies. How does that make sense? We see his influence all around. In the wars, in the famines, in the media we listen to, the political stances that don't honor God, and I might add, which is probably most, most of them. My uncle used to tell me if... if Any vote that you have is for the lesser of two evils. Because all men are evil at some point. The only one you could vote for who is totally right would be Jesus Christ. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to do to influence to live as much as we can for God's righteousness, to do the right thing, to have a worldview that focuses on what God wants and not what our, our desires are or the political views around us. The opposite of our enemy is Jesus Christ. Who do we follow? And our first four Beatitudes, they deal with the inward man, the inside of us, our inward focus on what we should be on the inside. And then how is that shown to the world? Well, that's where the next ones come in. You see, if we have poverty of spirit, a poor spirit, we understand the need for mercy. If we mourn over the sin of sins, um, and want to be led to that purity of heart, that goes in verse eight. But let's not get ahead too far. Blessed are the merciful, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Mercy's not a virtue, and it wasn't a virtue in the days of Jesus on the earth. Jewish leaders were arrogant, judgmental, self-righteous, doing more condemning than really helping. There were those who believed they were perfect, even though their own works had no patience and no mercy towards others. It was like to them, everyone but the religious leaders were enemies to God and their leadership. Romans showed very little mercy, even to other Romans. You broke one little law, boom, you could be dead. You could be thrown in jail. In our own world, we see examples of a lack of mercy. This... um, This attitude some people have about, I I think the word is cancel. I'm going to cancel them because they don't agree with me. And people lose their jobs and they lose their, their ability to function because of that. We have families that are torn apart by grudges held by for years, literally. I'm so angry at them, I will never talk to them again. Friendships are destroyed because of a lack of mercy. And even churches get in disarray because of that lack of mercy. We should have, we as Christians, should be the ultimate in showing mercy to one another. Now, unfortunately, in our thinking anyway, showing mercy doesn't mean the recipients that we give that to are going to become merciful. There are many examples in the Bible where those who were shown mercy responded in far less than merciful ways. And I don't want to say God doesn't care about them, but for the purposes of what we're saying, God looks at us. What are we doing? It doesn't matter what they're doing. God looks at are we merciful? Can we show mercy? But what does it mean that we will receive God's mercy? Well, in the Septuagint, that's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek word for mercy is eliamon. And it's used in place of the Hebrew word hesed, which is always used for God's loving kindness towards those who are his. And it's translated in a dozen different ways. But the underlying thing is God shows mercy. We're going to receive that mercy. And we got time for one more. Verse 8. Happy are the holy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Now, frankly, there's more packed into this one verse than, than we would comprehend in a month of Sundays going through it. But it relates, relates back to verse 4, mourning over our sin. It's the idea of personal holiness. And holiness is found in every book of the Bible, and it's not an external show like the Pharisees and the modern-day false prophets who claim the more material blessings you have are evidence of your faith in holiness. What a crock of crud. But holiness is described in Luke 18, the parable of the tax collector, and it's probably the best way to explain it quickly. It says, speaking of Jesus, it says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The purity in our hearts, and I know we're sinners, and I'm not saying we're perfect, but in any way, shape, or form. It comes from knowing that fact, that we're sinners. But we're sinners saved by grace. It's not our perfections, it's not our awesomeness in our minds, uh, or, or even what other people think of us. But the realization was that without Jesus and his sacrifice, we would be condemned. It's a hard issue. And what does that mean? Well, we think of the heart as being the center of our emotions, don't we? My heart just breaks for him. Oh, my heart pumps for joy whenever I see her. Now, that does happen to me when I see my wife. I want you to know that, but that's not the point here. In the Bible, the heart is the center of our being, inside and out. In the book of Genesis, we are told their hearts were wicked, and Jeremiah tells us, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come 
comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, slander. These are what defile a person. But we, like David, can finish off this morning's service with saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. That's all we can ask for.